Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host. I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. Elsewhere in Washington, D.C., your nation's capital, we have Mika Oyang, the Vice President of National Security Studies at the Third Way Organization. We have Rosa Brooks at Georgetown University. And in far-off London, we have Corey Shockey, um, uh, who has settled back in after traveling all over the world. Did you go to the APAC meeting, too? Did I hear that? <laughs> were you I, I mean, you were, you were everywhere there for, 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 for a while. Um, and what I would like to do is pick up on a dimension of this conversation that we had recently had about Korea, and we were talking about some of the winners, there were some losers, too, that sort of pertain to the overall flow of things here. And certainly one of them, um, Corey, was Rex Tillerson, who in the morning says, we are a long <laughs> way from negotiations <laughs> with, with the Koreans. And then by the afternoon, he's like, oops, I guess we're not. And as, you know, once again, blindsided. And it seems like Everybody was blindsided, um, and it has a lot of implications, this radical decision, for who replaces McMaster, if McMaster goes, with this thing on the near horizon. Um, what is Mattis thinking, since he has been notoriously quiet on this thing? We also had a you know a major change with the McMaster equivalent on the economic side, Gary Cohn deciding he was going to leave, and and you've got that potential change going on, and I'm just you know the the musical chairs are spinning around, and I you know it's 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 got to be confusing for those on the inside, also got to be confusing for those in the outside world, and as you've been to all of these different meetings, I'm wondering what do what do people think of the way the administration is actually working internally? Uh, people are scared. People are confused. Uh, people never tire of telling us that America is squandering the moral standing and policy capital that it worked so hard for 70 years to accrue. Um, one thing I would say about Secretary Tillerson, you know, it is a constant surprise to me that he holds up under the humiliation that the president so sadistically seems to enjoy shelling out <laughs> to him. And and it's easy to overlook, though, that on every decision the president has made where policy is a continuation or a modification of what the Obama administration had in place— or that is 
a standard, responsible, conservative foreign policy. On every single one of those policies, Secretary Tillerson has been arguing the responsible side of the case. And the president denigrates him, undercuts him right and left. And I'm beginning to have a, a, an appreciation for the dogged hanging in thereness of Rex Tillerson because where there have been good outcomes, he has been on the side of those outcomes all along the way to include negotiations with the North Koreans as the president and the national security advisor have been rather recklessly suggesting that the sand is slipping through the hourglass and we're going to voluntarily start a war on the Korean peninsula. Well, of course, Mika, one of the things about Rex Tillerson is that when the president says or does horrible things uh, like equating white supremacists with peaceful protesters or attacking people on the basis of their race or their gender or their national origin, Rex Tillerson remains silent. So it's not that he's just dogged. He's also an enabler. And one of the things that we learned... I see you that point. Yeah. And one of the things that we've learned in the past week uh, is, of course, what actually pushes Republicans across the line. And apparently, racism doesn't do it. Um, and uh, bringing the world to the brink of nuclear war doesn't do it, and succumbing on a regular basis to anything the NRA says, thus resulting in the deaths of 34,000 Americans a year, doesn't do it. Um, misogyny doesn't do it. Affairs with porn stars don't do it. But apparently the one thing Republicans will not tolerate is a tariff. They just hate those trade wars. Um and it's uh, it's an interesting line that's been drawn. It led Gary Cohn, who tolerated Charlottesville, to say, "Nope, I'm out of here. This is just a bridge too far." And I'm wondering, you know, how do, how does that color your view of this crowd of people? And is there anything else out there like tariffs, or is that the only thing that would do it? So i I have a really hard time trying to get into the mindset of this crowd. It's just so distinct and different from any of the Republicans that I've dealt with over much of my career, which I'm sure Corey also finds mystifying. Um, and I do think that actually Michael Gerson's got a really great piece in The Atlantic, which I would recommend to everyone on why evangelism has become what it has and has continued to embrace Trump and his misogynist, racist approach to things. I can't... It, I can't see the logic in it, but I understand where where he's going with that. I do feel like between the tax bill and the tariffs, there are places where Republicans are feeling like they need a couple of things from him. The Supreme Court nomination would be another one. You saw Dean Heller trying to argue that if Justice Kennedy retires, that would actually save him. And so they're sort of making us, the, the Republicans are sort of standing up at the very outer edges of what we would consider the normal American political consensus. Um, and and I don't understand why, because there are any number of things where a supermajority of Americans agrees that it's the right thing to do and there's a right consensus there on you know, some sensible gun control legislation, dreamers, any number of things. And the president and the Republicans are just not interested in that. Um, and it may be that the gerrymander is so tough that they don't feel like they'll ever pay a price for going against 
the will of the people and the majority opinion. Um, but I have a really hard time understanding a, what motivates them and b where their value frames are to try and explain some of the behavior. Well, I, I think that's understandable because you're, you know, grounded in, in, in values and reason. Um, terrible. It's a terrible handicap. Yeah, right. But Rosa, of course, you, you're not. <laughs> I'm not. Bound, bound, bound by any of those things, which raises the question, why well, haven't... I thought that arrow was going to be fired my direction. <laughs> but I was, I was going to ask, Rosa, why haven't you become an evangelist? It gives you so much freedom to be it's both... It's true. You know, you could, you could, you could, you know, you, you can be um, self-righteous all the time and yet have no values at all. That's true. No, apparently it means almost nothing except that you get to be extremely self-righteous and claim that God is on your side pretty much no matter what you're saying. So it does seem convenient. And I'm thinking of becoming one. Um, well, I, that's, I, I think that the deep state nerds would sign up for the church of Rosa Brooks and the, 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 the thorny crown of entropy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, it, believe me, it has crossed my mind every now and then that since the Republican party, uh, as is currently constituted appears to have so little coherent ideology or, or sort of theory of politics anymore, that probably the most effective way uh, for Democrats to retake the House, the Senate, and the White House is simply to start calling ourselves Republicans, which will confuse everybody, um, and maybe, <laughs> maybe half of them will vote for us. Um, so that's my advice, everybody, is just go register as a Republican if you're a Democrat and just keep saying what you're saying and, you know, confusion, confusion will reign. Um, but but I, the Republicans are saying what I've been saying for years has gone up tremendously since the election. Well, and actually one of the one of the stories, um, I mean, this is this is not about your, your original question, David, um, when has uh, that ever? When has that ever stopped? <laughs> when has that ever stopped us? But, <laughs> but one of the one of the stories which uh, I don't think has gotten quite as much uh, media attention as it probably should have been should have been getting is the decline in Republican Party uh, affiliation that people are are the pollsters are seeing um, since the election of Donald Trump that. That when you look at polls that say, well, how many Republicans support Trump and how many Democrats, what percentage of Republicans and Democrats still support him, you know, you say, oh, oh, look, his report from his, his support from Republicans is virtually unchanged from his election to today. Um, but on the other hand, when you look at a very different question, how many Americans say that they're Republicans, that number has has dipped pretty significantly. So People who still call themselves Republicans still, still by and large, support Donald Trump, but fewer and fewer people are willing to call themselves Republicans. And and how that how that plays out will be really interesting to look at. And it, the the hard core of Trump support electorally and in the polls absolutely seems to be evangelicals. Um, um, we obviously are seeing real division amongst you know some evangelical leaders. Uh, those with uh, consciences and brains, I would say, have expressed some doubt about what Trump is doing to um, the evangelical movement. But um, and we're also seeing that female evangelicals, although they overwhelmingly support the Trump agenda and support Trump himself, are a little bit more likely to be peeling away from him than men. But, uh, you know, it remains a very it remains the one the one pocket of the country 
where mysteriously for a group of people who, who were supposed to be voting based on uh, principles of morality uh, seems perfectly willing to abandon all of those principles and continue to support Trump no matter what. Well, that, you know, that's an interesting point. You know, Corey, it, it, you know, for you as, you know, a never Trumper, have you ever considered the possibility of being, you know, playing off of this confusion and just sort of self-identifying as trans party? <laughs> kind of dem publican. I We need a new pronoun to go with this, but... <laughs> It's pretty good, David. What's yeah. that? Okay, so, <laughs> well, I just the Democrats. Yeah, Rebe- yeah, right. We live in an era in which you know this kind, this kind of undecided is perfectly acceptable in all things. And I was just wondering, um, you know, when you go to these 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 you know big international conferences where you're asked to speak, is is you know are are you using new terminology? To, de- to describe uh, yourself. No, but now I have good terminology going forward. So thank you. Um, I. Yeah, well, after having listened to Betsy DeVos last night, um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't know how you could be associated. I, I do think that Trump and Mnuchin and DeVos have done the world a great service by proving once and for all that rich does not mean smart. As though that needed proving in the year of our Lord, 2017, 2018. 18, yeah. Um, I, uh, so I believe fervently that we need to win the argument within the Republican Party uh, that principles matter and that the, the fears and resentments and, and recklessness and disgrace that many of us on the right are engaged in needs to be repudiated. It needs to be repudiated from within the right in addition to from our fellow Americans. And I think unless we can win the argument among conservatives to shame ourselves into returning to our principles and to believing that leaving the country a better place for our children is the purpose of the endeavor. Right now, we seem to be meeting the good joke that P.J. O'Rourke told a long time ago about how conservatives believe government is a disaster and they get elected and prove it. Um, And we need to walk that back. We need to be sober, sensible women and men who compromise for the greater good, who have the lighthouse of principles to guide our decision-making, and and who stop trying to force capitulation by people who have different views than we do. Wow. That's very moving. And I think I'm a shockyite. In fact, we will all call ourselves the shock the shock troops. The shock troops, yes. <laughs> The Democrat soft truth. Evangelical Democrat soft truth. I don't know if I can persuade you to, to join this, Mika, Mika but the, mm-hmm. one of the things that strikes me is that while we focus on the problems of the Republican Party um, because they're so awful, um, there is also a brewing problem in the Democratic Party. Uh, and you haven't been able to join in our past discussions of this, but this may not come as a big shock to you. But 
I mean, David, you know, I work a third way. So. Yeah, no, I, no, I know. I was, I was kind of <laughs> hoping that was going to tilt you in the right direction here. Um, I, but, but you know, one, one of the things that's striking to me is, you know, the Democratic Party has this problem that as the worse Trump looks, the better Obama looks. And frankly, Obama wasn't that good on foreign policy and national security policy. And the lousy team of Obama national security and foreign policy people are now sort of rising up as an option. And then Joe Biden, who was a perfectly lovely guy and you know made a nice vice president, is like emerging as a leading candidate, even though the main thing the Democrats have to do to actually win is get people under the age of 44 to turn out. That's that's the big issue. And offering the same old, you know, um, brew in a new cup or in an old cup is just not going to do is not going to do the trick. And I just think, you know, we, we, we do have a new idea problem on the Democratic side of the ledger. Perhaps you don't agree. No, I mean, my organization is very much seized with this question of, you know, how do we come up with? How do we think about the future? How do we develop agendas and policies that help us go forward rather than look back? And right, you, one could argue that the Republicans are looking back to 1950 as its sort of ideal on, in terms of social policy, but that the Democrats are looking back to 1970 in terms of its economic policy. And neither party is really looking forward. I mean, I think the Democrats are looking forward on social policy and where do we go in progress. But I think there are some real questions about where, how do we look forward and not back to either uh, on foreign policy and on economic policy. And I think that part of the challenge, as you say, with some of the Obama folks rising up to more prominence in this debate in opposition to the president is that they are wearing cement shoes grounded in the last administration. And it's very hard for them to look fairly at some of the things that and own the mistakes that they made before. I mean, I thought Laura in the last episode did a really good job of acknowledging her part in that. And I think if we aren't willing to learn from our mistakes and move forward, we have a really big problem. But, you know, whatever it is that the Obama administration was doing for all its successes and its flaws will not be applicable to the world that the next president will be elected to deal with. Because after Trump, no matter how long it is, the world will be in a very substantively different place. And so pouring that template back in and having people say, well, if we could just go back to Obama, everything will be fine. The world is not holding still waiting for us. So you're going to have to get a bunch of people who are willing to rethink everything from the ground up just because America's alliances and you know technology and, and the global economy will look very different in January 2021. Well, don't call me fickle, but forget the shock troops. I am now Oyang for president, and <laughs> I am totally behind you. Uh, Corey may run as your vice president. Um, here, but, here. Uh, and the you only reason... Republicans. Yeah, Republic. Well, that's... I'm on de- <laughs> de- Publicans or something like that. Exactly. Be, you know, I have a, you know, a slight bias in this regard, um, uh, which it reflects in no way on either of you personally. Um, but but Rose, I did hear you say here, here in the background, and I do think that we've discussed in the past that the idea of simply being better than Trump it gets us into a trap that we've been in a lot. Bush ran on saying I'm not Clinton. Obama ran on saying I'm not Bush. Trump ran on saying I'm not Obama. 
this is all backwards looking. And meanwhile, the nature of warfare is changing. The nature of economics is changing. The nature of uh, environmental challenges is changing. The nature of who is a powerful state is changing. The nature of our international institutions is changing as they falter. All these new issues exist. Um, and, you know, I think Mika put it exactly right. And we're faced with, do we want, um, you know, the Eisenhower administration or the Carter administration as our choice? And that's kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to make a slightly different point. I, th- I think that's true, too. Right. I think that I think that nobody nobody has a great theory about how should America lead in today's very, very complicated, very, very dangerous world full of rapid technological change, full of instability? I don't think anyone has sort of cracked the code on that in in, in the abstract, um, either neither conservatives nor nor progressives. Um, um, I'm not sure that there is a way to crack the code. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, that there is sort of an approach that that is cl- clearly superior. I mean, I, as you know, I've, I've written about I've written about the virtues of embracing uncertainty as a as a sort of paradoxical strategic lodestone. And that may be the best we can do in this environment. But I, I was I was actually thinking of something a little bit different, which is which is the the how as much as the what the how we communicate. Um, and I do think that if Democrats want to be successful in the future electorally, we need to get we need we 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 are the party of technocrats, you know, and we we proudly embrace that. But we need to get a whole lot smarter, uh, not about policy, but about psychology, about narrative, about communication skills. Um, I think that it's probably fair to say, and it sort of breaks my heart to say it. Uh, I think that the Republican Party has been better at just reaching people in their hearts uh, in many ways than the Democratic Party on a lot of issues. Um, even, I mean, one of the things that we've seen quite quite consistently, really, since the Reagan era, is that issue by issue, when when polls ask about specific policies, that the majority of the American public tends to align more with policies advanced by the Democratic Party, tends to support policy by policy, policies advanced by the Democratic Party. But that's not necessarily how they vote. You know, and the question, the big question is not, it seems to me, gee, why don't people vote with their economic self-interest? Uh, and they very often do not. You know, it's why don't they vote for the party that is advancing the policies they say they want? And they very often don't do that either. You know, I think right. that Reagan obviously was, you know, he was called the great communicator for a reason. I thought that George W. Bush, despite the many Bushisms that we all love to giggle about, uh, did a pretty good job of sounding like he cared when he talked to people, he often sounded confused. He often mixed up his words, but he tended to sound like he was speaking from the heart. And I well, think I th- what I think people he, like about Donald he, Trump I think he is the same speaking. thing. I think yeah. Trump w- was speaking from the heart. Where, whereas I think that whether, you know, Bill Clinton's maybe a bit of an exception to this, but but I think that Barack Obama's big failure, and it was baffling to many of us because because this this he was a brilliant campaigner, Barack Obama. You know, his campaign speeches absolutely hit people in the heart. But once he became president, it was like he forgot all about that or forgot how to do that. 
And every utterance that came out of his mouth or, frankly, the mouths of his closest advisors tended to be so boring, so technocratic, you know, so rationalist in its in its nature that, you know, even I, who generally agreed with him, would start to fall asleep when he spoke, you know, and and that is a problem that I don't think the Democratic Party has successfully grappled with, which is that we don't seem to know how to talk to people or connect with them. So even when we're right, as we very often are, we still end up losing people. And I and there's you know there is lots of research out there by you know uh, behavioral psychologists and social psychologists and behavioral economists and you know people who make ads and who make movies and we do know a lot about what changes people's minds and very rarely is it new facts uh, and very rarely clearly the the rhetoric that that characterized the Obama administration doesn't work and you know every time I, I hear I hear my my friends in in the Democratic establishment such as it is saying things like, America is strongest when we have strong alliances, I think, snore, you know, that's right. I don't disagree. But nobody is changing their mind or going to the polls because anybody said that, you know, and, and, and we're horrible at it. And I don't know how to get better, but it kind of breaks my heart. Well, now I'm going to so... vote. For, now I'm going to vote for you. <laughs> or we can go to one of these co-council things like they had in ancient <laughs> Rome. But, Corey, I want to direct a question. A triumvirate. Yeah, the triumvirate. That's a nice idea. But, but Corey, I want to go to you because I want to talk about where the Republican Party seems to be going. Um, on the day that we taped this, the breaking news as we were taping it was that the Iowa Senate Majority Leader um, resigned due to a video surfacing of him kissing a female statehouse lobbyist. Now, see this, a Republican kissing a lobbyist. It's so beautiful, <laughs> and it's so, it's so perfect. <laughs> I, 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 I feel obligated, just out of a sense of, you know, sort of reportorial duty, to note that the <laughs> Iowa Senate Majority Leader um, is named Bill Dix. Um, <laughs> so Majority Leader Dix has resigned his job uh, for kissing a statehouse lobbyist. Meanwhile, there are all these rumors of machinations at the White House. And and it seems like the White House is, you know, whenever there's a sequel, the quality of the cast goes down. But we're kind of like going from you know Ocean's <laughs> Eleven to Ocean's 75 here, starring Pauly Shore, um, where... Where, you know, we're talking about Larry Kudlow as the chief economic advisor, a guy who neither completed his graduate degree um, and also on, t on top of all of that sort of disappeared for a couple of weeks once in the midst of some drug binge uh, is just an unbelievably stupid choice. And then on the national security side, every day we're treated to another possibility that John Bolton. Um, who was, you know, dropped on his head as a child and is the worst of the Republican Party in terms of uh, national security um, uh, 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 viewpoints, uh, may end up in this administration. It, it actually could get worse, couldn't it? Oh, yes. It absolutely <laughs> could get worse. I can hear my very eccentric mother 
in the back of my head saying the gods always amuse themselves by showing us our lack of creativity and imagining how much worse things could actually be. Um, wow, and, that was a very good, that was a very time, evocative imitation of your mother, by the way. It sounded... <laughs> It sounded so real that I my palms are starting to sweat a little bit here. But yeah. <laughs> She's a great broad, my mom. Um, so, so yes, it absolutely could get worse than this and may well get worse than this. Um, but I, so two things. First, uh, I, as the owner and, and wearer of the tiara of optimism, I, uh, can tell Rosa to buck up because uh, we actually have a way for the Democratic Party to do that. And it's called lust to win elections. And it looks <laughs> is to me like- sufficient, Corey? I don't know if lust is sufficient. <laughs> is breaking out all over. A diversity, I have been waiting for the Democratic Party to play to its strong suit. Wait, what which is that? Is I've, I've, yes, been a de- I've been a Democrat in Washington for 25 years, and I have no idea what its strong suit is. Its strong suit is young, fresh voices. Yes. Right? That, and I see them all over the place right now. I see it in the Parkland High School students uh, advocating for gun control. Oh, that I, young. That young. I, I thought you meant like 62. <laughs> I see it. In lots of uh, Democratic veterans running for office, I see it in, I, I just think it's all over the place. So, so I'm uh, increasingly convinced that the, that the midterm elections are likely to deliver the, at least the House of Representatives to uh, Democrats. And then the challenge for Democrats will be, do you spend this opportunity um, uh, investigating the president and settling scores, or do you spend this opportunity trying to showcase what legislation in a, rep- in a Democratic administration should look like, or is there a way to combine both? The other thing I would say, though, and this goes to the uh, kissing lobbyists and porn stars stuff is that I have long thought that the Clinton impeachment was kind of prairie justice for everyone concerned, right? The president uh, lied to a grand jury, something that if he were somebody other than the president, uh, there would be a serious legal consequence for. The president was dished a serious political consequence, which was the loss of momentum for his second term. The Republicans who believed that that the president's infraction was a high crime and misdemeanor uh, went on a rampage that resulted in a pornographer bringing down two speakers of the House of Representatives by merely offering a $10,000 bounty for any woman who could prove that she had been engaged in similar acts with with senior congressional leadership who were bringing the case against the president. And all of them got voted out of office by, not the president, the members of Congress who brought this, by an exasperated American public who wanted the government to focus on important stuff for the country. And so now we have Donald Trump. The American public has gotten something new. 
Um, but but having said that, uh, I do give the Republican Party credit because the president gets a lot of flack for having an affair with a porn star. And somebody in the party out there in the hinterland thinks, well, what could be worse than that? How about a lobbyist? And indeed, <laughs> that, you know, that's... That's 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 where we've taken this. Now, Mika, you haven't been on this show except for the last episode before. But one mm-hmm. of the things that I always say to everybody before they go on is under no circumstances make reference to the day we're taping this because it d- dates the thing. And then this thing plays in three days and everybody goes, this is dated. And I'm now going to break that rule because I'm sitting here looking at the Twitter feed, mainly because that's how I know what is on Corey and Rose's mind because they tweet while they're talking. No, um, no, no. I've been very restrained today. I haven't tweeted a single little tweet. Well, Corey has been up there talking. tweeting. Corey's <laughs> like, oh, I love this. And what a nice book this is going to be. And oh, what a terrific recipe. But but the White House you know, press conference has been going on. And this is another thing that is, is, is part of the problem in Washington right now. Um, and reporters, you know, were going after Sarah Sanders saying, well, how does the president feel about this Russian nerve gas attack? And, and, and Sarah Sanders goes, you know, the use of highly lethal nerve agent on UK soil is an outrage. The attack is reckless, indiscriminate, and irresponsible, which sounds strong. But then they keep saying, is Russia responsible? And the White House refuses to acknowledge that Russia is responsible, even though Putin talked about poisoning people, this is their technique, this is their technology, this was their guy. The The British think it was the Russians. Everybody thinks it was the Russians. And it speaks to another dimension of this whole thing, which is the degree to which wholesale lying, whole, I mean, unbelievable blind spots. In the, I mean, is, is the secret that Rosa is looking for connecting to the American people just telling them what they want and and not avoiding the bad stuff that makes you uncomfortable? Is the Democrats' problem that they're inclined to tell the truth? So I think this is really interesting, this question of like, are they lying, not lying? There are some people who are arguing that like, it's not actually lying because they don't actually care what truth is. And to lie, you'd actually have to know what the truth is and to care about it. Um, and for totally separate reasons, uh, over the weekend, I was reading Kennan's long telegram. Wow. You Scott, sound like you are having a fun weekend. Super fun. Um, I also have <laughs> a fantastic play, which I recommend to everyone. Sounds like fun to me. Um, but anyway, called familiar- oh, yeah. yeah, I saw your tweet about the Woolly Mammoth Theater. In fact, I've, I, I really like the fact that you tweet a lot about the theater. I mean, you were very excited about seeing Hamilton a couple of weeks ago. and Oh, yeah. No, you got to go support the arts in person. I think it's really important. Yeah. Anyway, in Kennan's long telegram, he's got this whole paragraph about the Russian view of truth and their sense that there is, in fact, no objective truth, right? That the truth is just what you say it is. And I think that, that Trump very much embodies that Russian conception of truth, right? He said things like telling his White House counsel, no, I didn't ask you to fire Rosenstein. And the counsel having to say to him, yes, you did. And I don't doubt that Trump was sincere in the moment that he said, I never asked you for this or any number of other things where he said, you know, the Access Hollywood tape is fake news. After a few months earlier, he had said, oh yeah, no, I did that. Right. He just has no concept of like that there is an objective truth out there, which I think is fundamentally intention and opposition with democracy and the idea that there is some objective truth 
and that you hold your leaders accountable to that truth. It's a re- it's real that's a really interesting point and gets us to a metaphysical level we se- seldom get to in our discussions here um, about whether objective truth um, exists. Um, um, Rosa, you know, the other day I was sitting at the I'm David. I'm not going to take that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will show what a true-bred conservative I am. Of course, there is objective truth. This relativization and postmodernist deconstruction of truth is wrong, wrong, wrong. But it's your party that keeps having people say things like we construct our own reality. Yeah, well, I mean, Corey is the Corey's on the right. The only person in the world with an Edmund Burke tramp stamp. It's the very. (laughs) (laughs) Very. Very, very, uh, very strange. Um, and we don't want to go, go, go back there. But, but Rosa, just as we wrap this up, I want to, I want to share with you a little vignette that speaks a little bit to this issue of objective truth, but also to your chosen profession of law, with you as the associate dean of the law school at at Georgetown University School of Law. The other, the other day, I was in New York City, and I was at the Regency Hotel, the restaurant in the Regency Hotel, which is kind of the equivalent of the Washington Four Seasons Hotel, which is kind of the company cafeteria for a certain kind of mover and shaker in the respective town. Uh, And I looked over and at the other table was Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel. And could I be right? And I looked and then I noticed the, you know, the one Israeli security guard at another table, which is typical of them. And yeah, sure, it was Ehud Barak. And then he stands up and he goes over to another table to talk to somebody else. And as I thought, well, it's admirable. He's, you know, he's like a Paul and he's working the room. Um, And then he leaves. And it turns out the guy he's talking to at the other table is Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's Donald Trump's lawyer, who's got like five phones in front of them and he's staring at them like each one has typhoid and and he doesn't want to touch them. They're ringing. He's got his crisis going on. He's got a kind of upper lip sweat. Porn stars to pay off. He's got porn stars to pay off. It's but (laughs) but then he starts walking around the room and he knows everybody in the room. And he and I'm like over here. Where were you? What is this restaurant we want to know? This is the Regency Hotel. And 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 so he goes up to everybody and what he says to everybody is, well, of course, I use Trump dot org email address because, you know, I mean, if you worked at AT&T, sometimes you send emails from your AT&T account. People do that. And everybody's going, yo, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's right we, Mike. we haven't had <laughs> any controversies involving email in this country. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, why would anybody think twice? Exactly. But I, but yeah, I was thinking, go there? But I was thinking this is the problem, right? People live in bubbles and nobody wanted to say anything bad to them. And so he's saying this idiotic nonsense nonsense. And then he goes person to person to person. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, no, that's right, Mike. Uh, you know, uh, let's play golf sometime. And, and and that's where we get to this issue of objective truth. It stops to exist. It ceases to exist if nobody around you actually believes it. Well, it doesn't cease. I will I will side with okay. Corey on this okay. one. It doesn't uh, yeah. cease to exist just because you're surrounded by sycophants. Uh, you just it ceases it ceases to be relevant to your day to day life because everybody pretends it doesn't exist. Um, but it may yet come back to bite you because people like Robert Mueller may decide that it still exists, even if you're all pretending to ignore it. And right. sick of fans in the Regency rest, yeah. hotel restaurant are pretending to ignore it. Kick uh, a rock. 
<laughs> yeah, but the, pick a rock. Uh, hide and refute it. Barkley. Yes, and thus I refute Barkley. Wow. Thank you, Corey. Corey, <laughs> Corey oh, and I prevail. Every that. Thursday we end with that classic <laughs> refutation of Barkley that makes this show so... Kick a fucking rock. Deeply. Also <laughs> refute Michael Cohen. <laughs> This show, th- this is why nerds love this show. They, you know, they just, they feel it's, it's like nutritious, but it's got a candy coating on the outside that makes it digestible. Um, it's like those Flintstone gummy vitamins. That's the metaphor for deep state radio. That's why you listen, right, Mika? Oh, so many podcasts. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. No, it is it is the camaraderie of the uh, of the deep state. It is, it is the camaraderie, and deep state is a compliment around here. For those people who say bad things about the deep state, you know, it's Corey's point earlier. There are actually people in the United States government who are paid to do their jobs, who take them very seriously, who are serving their country, who do it regardless of who the boss is, who end up being there after the boss leaves, and who make this whole system work even when big parts of it are dysfunctional. And, you know, I think one of the worst things about the whole Republican rant is this idea that Government is bad. The people in government are bad because the only alternative to that is is anarchy. It's killing government. And, of course, they want that because it gives them more freedom to be rapacious in, with the environment or, 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 or in markets or whatever. Um, but, but we love those people. Do you love those people, Mika? I mean, do you feel— Of course. Oh, no. My father was a career bureaucrat. Well— Retired with more than thirty years of service from the federal government. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a yes, David. That's Good. A yes. Well, that's that's where we want to end. We want to end with something positive like that. Mika, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you will come yes. back and join and 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 enjoy this camaraderie again. Um, Corey, thank you for being there in London all the time. Thank you, Rosa, for being there. Uh, in the pastoral surroundings of Georgetown University at the edge of Georgetown. And, and <laughs> I, I just want to say that, that the pastoral surroundings of Georgetown Law School are not anywhere near the rest of Georgetown <laughs> University. Oh, yeah, They're that's near the, true. Near the pastoral surroundings of Union Station. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's right. You're like by that overpass, by by the new tunnel and all that construction. Precisely, near the pastoral surroundings of the 395 tunnel construction. Yeah, well, that's, that sucks. I'm really sorry about that for you. Well, too bad for you, Rosa. Thanks for everybody for joining us. Please join us again next week uh, for another exciting episode of As the World Disintegrates. So long. <laughs> Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>